Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week, we'll be talking to people in the know about business, the economy, and the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, owner of Recognition PR, one of the longest established PR firms in the north of England. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services, and some are featured on this podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Both of our guests today are down the line. We've got Sharon Lane, Managing Director of Tees Components, a specialist engineering company based in East Cleveland, and Fahim Khan, who's Senior Economist for Make UK, the organisation which gives a voice to the manufacturing sector across the country. And later, my colleague, Joss Haverkin, will be talking to a lawyer, John Howe, about how your capital gains tax could be affected if you work from home. But let's start first with Mate UK. Now, both of our guests down the line today are members of Mate UK. Farheen is the chief economist and Sharon, nice to see you again. Your business is a member and you're a member of Mate UK, aren't you? Yeah, I, I chair the Northeast Advisory Board for Mate UK. So I get to meet with manufacturers from the Northeast once every quarter to hear their feedback too. Well, we're going to talk about some of that feedback in just a minute because there's a new report that's been published by the organisation. But first, Fahim, let's set the economic context and the the context of uh, what's happening in the general economy. I've got a front page of a newspaper from the north of England today. I'll hold it up for the camera and it says unemployment hits a record low. Now, I've been in work since 1980 and I've never known uh, unemployment in the northeast of England be below the national average is 3.6%. And uh, around the north of England in general, unemployment is well below uh, 4%. What is your view on where we stand in the general economy at the moment? Yes, I think it's very interesting that the performance that we've seen on the first roughly six months or so in the UK has been not as bad as what people may have been saying towards the end of 2022. And actually, that's not just seen across within the manufacturing community, but also across businesses in the UK. Um, GDP has been growing uh, most months of the year, although they haven't been growing a lot. We are still growing, um, albeit at rates of about 0.1-0.2% per month. I think for April, we grew about 0.2%. Unemployment uh, and employment rates have been very, very interesting because what we have been seeing is whilst businesses remain very hungry to hire people, which is a great sign that the economy is still growing, and what we were seeing is that we're also seeing those economic inactivity rates fall. So actually what we had a problem last year is that a lot of people were not returning to the workforce after COVID, um, but actually we're starting to finally see that actually a lot of those people who were outside of the workforce are now starting to finally come back in. Um, for what reasons, I cannot say, but it's a good sign that people are keen to can get back into work manufacturers and all businesses remain very keen to hire and it's a very good sign and i'll just add very quickly and we have some data coming out on monday next week so it's a bit of an inside view for your viewers um our q2 manufacturing outlook report will publish on monday which is really showing perhaps the first signs of stability in the manufacturing industry that we've probably not seen since mid 2016 i won't mention what happened back then um so manufacturers are seeing their output grow, they're seeing orders coming in, they're also seeing their exports return, and they could continue to hire at pace. 
the only challenge is that they're not able to hire enough because there's still a shortage of workers and skilled labor available in the economy. So actually, if businesses could hire more, they would if the skills and talent were available. But we're also seeing that manufacturers are feeling confident again about investing in the future. So it's really, really good news and good things that we are seeing in the UK are happening at the moment. Okay, we'll unpick some of those figures in a minute. One way of unpicking them is to look at the economic inactivity rate. And you're quite right, in the Northeast, I pick because it was always the worst. Uh, it went down the economic inactivity by two and a half percentage points. And if you look at employment rates in the north of England, um, in the UK, it's 76% people employed. In the northeast, 74.4. In Yorkshire, 74.4. And in the northwest, 75.2. So much, they're just nudging up those employment rates, and they're, they're pretty good. Now, um, looking at uh, some of the uh, big issues. The, the one thing that manufacturing can play a huge part in is the balance of trade. Now, the data isn't out on balance of trade recently, but if you look at things like uh, green initiatives, there's been a lot of debate among politicians about whether we should spend a lot of money helping people retrofit their houses with uh, air source heat pumps. And I was talking to a manufacturer just this week who wants to start manufacturing air source heat pumps. And he was pointing out, actually, some of these technologies will suck in imports. The jobs might be in fitting them, but actually it's the manufacturing of them that we need to get across. Absolutely. I think net zero is with the one of the biggest, or achieving net zero and fighting climate change is one of the biggest challenges of our generation. And whilst many people would argue that it may be manufacturing from the industrial revolution that perhaps... Um, ignited the the challenges around that we face today with with climate change it is manufacturers who are going to come up with the solutions to also solve climate change and we see that from manufacturers and there's a huge market for people who are interested um, in adopting renewable technologies. In fact, the energy crisis last year, when energy prices and gas prices skyrocketed for businesses, there was an explosion of demand for solar panels and wind farms and heat pumps and all that sort of thing, which something that manufacturers previously, whilst they were interested in, were not eager to adopt quickly, but then they changed their minds. And they know that people and households are also beginning to take that step. Although it is important to know, and I think the, the the business you mentioned is right, we should focus on the production. The skills element of fitting those or installations is also critical because actually the, the solar panel story that I mentioned, what we had is when demand exploded for solar panels, we the UK didn't have enough engineers to fit them onto the buildings and factories and houses. In fact, if you were to place a, an order today for a panel, you would be told you wouldn't get one for until 2024. Um, so if we had the same situation with heat pump, even if, let's say, government policy was to um, fund it for everybody to adopt it for free, it wouldn't make a difference if we weren't able to have the labor needed to install that. So that's also a very critical component, but it is good um, that those businesses are actually looking forward and actually make taking those steps for uh, achieving energy and decarbonization. And this goes to industrial strategy. I know that on the heat pumps, because it's something I was looking into with a business client of recognition, that there is a government fund to support manufacturers, although it's pretty slow to get off the ground. You can't really apply for it properly yet uh, for heat pumps. Um, but I also know, as you say, there are firms now sitting fitting solar panels and car charges, and they're just sucking in imports, and it, it's only half of the solution. Now, you've been looking, you've got this new report, I'll hold it up for the camera here, Industrial Strategy and Manufacturing Ambition. And it is all about industrial strategy and what, what manufacturers want from government and manufacturing in terms of a, a national strategy. 
Yeah, well, the phrase industrial strategy itself is not a new one. I think we've always known that manufacturers have long called for a long-term plan um, to support the sector to grow. Um, and we were doing some work to understand exactly how the UK, and we published a paper, I think, over a decade ago from Make UK when we were previously known as EEF. And as I was reading that report from what we published 10 years ago, we realized that nothing had really changed that much in the in the last decade or so. And if we could republish that report if we wanted to, and it would still be valid today. In the last 15 years, I think we've had 15 different ministers who were responsible for uh, managing some sort of um, industrial strategy for the UK. I think in that same time period, we had maybe seven strategies that could be likened to something like an industrial strategy, which says to you, to me or to us that the average lifespan of a long-term plan from government has been about two years, which is not a very long plan. 99% of manufacturers um, say that the UK needs an industrial strategy. About 70% of businesses say that they think that countries like Germany do it better than the UK. Um, three in 10 manufacturers say that France does it better. And many businesses even said the US does it better and even especially given the huge sums of investment that the U.S. is putting behind with the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act and even the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, so what manufacturers want to see, and it doesn't have to be called industrial strategy, that's just the language that they use to understand and communicate it, is that there is a long-term plan and ambition that the government in the U.K., is backing manufacturing to continue growing in the UK uh, rather than trying to just deliver a service-based economy like some some politicians would argue we should, we should fight for. But actually, manufacturers will continue to grow. They will invest here as long as they know that the UK will still be here investing in manufacturing 10, 15 years from now. Okay, well, I'm flashing some, some of the findings of this survey on our screen for uh, viewers to watch, but for people listening to the podcast, you said 99% of manufacturers want industrial strategy. 56% of firms don't think there's been a robust vision from the government. 87% of companies say an industrial strategy would give their business long-term vision. And three quarters of manufacturers say an industrial strategy would be a stable, uh, offer a stable business environment. And that's very interesting. Particularly this one, 87% of companies say an industrial strategy would give their business a long-term vision. That's a sort of a bit of a cop-out from industry leaders, isn't it? Surely industry leaders should have an, a business vision. They know what's happening, not politicians and bureaucrats in Whitehall. So I'll tell you why they they said that, why 87% of manufacturers said that. Because a lot of manufacturers um, in the UK, many of them are actually owned by foreign companies, especially the particularly the large ones that have grown here. And quite often what they need to do is they need to convince their, their, part, their parent organizations why those companies should fund their investments in the UK instead of their German operations or their France operations or the US operations. Often what they find is that these conversations are becoming more difficult because foreign investors or even domestic investors are always asking the questions to the CEOs who are based here. So what's the UK going to be doing in the next 10 years? Why should I give my money to you now? The problem with manufacturing investments is that these are long-term investments. You're not going to see returns for them for many, many years. And so actually, it's a huge risk for those companies, particularly in the new technologies like battery manufacturing. Um, 
where manufacture where we could have the capacity to build it and we actually had an example of a member company who had built um, the proof of concept for a lithium battery that they could produce in the UK and when they finally had the product to go to market when they went to investors investors were turning around saying well what's the UK's plan for battery manufacturing in the next 10 15 years so actually these long-term visions outside of the business really have an impact on how investors view um, industry in the UK and actually affects our ability to compete. Okay, that's an extremely well elucidated point, uh, Fagin. Let's bring Sharon in as well. Um, and th he does make a, a very solid point about what industrial strategy is for. Um, the report also suggests that many members want it on a statutory footing. They don't just want a government, whether it's Labour or Conservative, whatever, to just say what their policy is. Uh, they want a strategy that is legal that we've got a net zero strategy where there's a it's legally bound for net zero by 2050 your members want industrial strategy built in whoever's in government is that to me sorry Graham. yeah well, both of you. yeah yeah i mean i think the worry now with with lots of business leaders is this short termism uh because we don't know for how much longer we'll have the current government the worry is now there won't be any of these long-term policy decisions mm. because they'll just be focused on the quick wins. And of course, this would happen every every four years. Mm. Um, could we have a Royal Commission for an industrial strategy? Could we make it completely apolitical um, and have something that is truly long-term? I completely agree with, um, with Fahim in that this would really make um, the UK much more attractive um, for inward investment because you would have that stability. Um, something like um, capital allowances, for example, you know, for that policy to change every one or two years yeah. um, really makes long-term business planning very difficult, particularly in the manufacturing sector when you're so reliant on those very large capital spends. Um, so I, I think it's so important. It's far too important. It's a very long game. It really should be. Um, something that has cross-party consensus and is is absolutely baked in for the long term. Okay, Sharon, I'm going to put the next question to both of you. Um, you when we look at your industrial strategy survey, you've got uh, a number of companies that all want different core focuses of industrial strategy. And Fahim, particularly, you said that you know the balance, the focus of decision makers and policy makers between manufacturing and services. But actually, it's increasingly crossing over. For instance, almost half of what of your members want to focus on digitalization as the key focus. Well, that means working quite often with specialist service companies. It might mean bringing in the AI policy that the government is developing. So there is now increasingly a crossover, isn't there, between the knowledge-based economy and the practical making economy. It's a really important point. I mean, we're not saying that we should um, move away from a service-based economy. I think what we want to recognize actually how much of the service-based industries actually exist in the UK because of companies like in the manufacturing industry, because actually many of these services exist to provide um, solutions to those type of businesses. And actually there is a very um, a split in priorities across the UK, particularly in different parts of the region. We do find that manufacturers in the south tend to be more interested in um, kind of progressing that 5g coverage having the broadband having the the um, the kind of digitalization because they're maybe perhaps a little bit far further ahead in that journey partly because we have a lot of electronic companies that are based in the south um, east 
whereas in the northern companies, but they don't have access to the London Underground Network. They don't have access to the same transport. They're actually more interested in actually we need physical infrastructure. We need rail networks. We need roads to be ready. We need to be able to deliver goods around the UK as quickly as possible because the kind of companies that are based there. So there are slightly different priorities, which is part of the reason why uh, manufacturers do want um, those, some of those decision making to be more localized because actually um, the leaders in the in their local areas might understand better than those who are perhaps in this in the center of London and Westminster about where those investors need to go and what we need to upgrade. Well, most of the leaders I know listen to Sharon. Sharon, what do you think should be the priority for an industrial strategy? I mean, the things that were the top ones were um, skills, innovation, green transition, and digitalization. Digitalization. Um, I suppose, knowing you as I do, you'd probably go for skills, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think... Generally, across the board, I would say with the um, exception of the automotive sector, we are all experiencing very strong demand in manufacturing. And we can't meet that demand. We don't have enough supply. And we can't really increase our capacity unless we have more people, and we know the issues with that, or we can increase our productivity and we can produce more with the people that we have. Um, So really, we're talking about connectivity as part of our infrastructure um access to digitization in order to be able to increase our productivity and then increasing our people yes it's great news that we we do have um people coming out of economic inactivity in the northeast and i've certainly seen that myself we need to really get it right with this next generation though of school leaders and i'm worried about um the fe sector being ready for that um with the changes that are being made to things like VTech qualifications for example you know, really messing with things, which is the last thing that we need right now when we're trying to progress on skills. So those two things for me, you know, having the people to be able to do the work and then accepting that also to some extent we can use technology to use fewer people, particularly in lower skilled roles and and increase our output. Sharon, I can't leave you without asking about your own business. We'll run some B-roll for viewers about this fantastic facility you have in East Cleveland. It's a specialist engineering firm. How is business? What kind of projects are you working on at the moment? So we're extremely busy. We're, we're one of those typical subcontractors at the moment that can't meet um, demand. We'd, we'd love to be able to do more. We've really ramped up on our training. We've extended our apprentice training facility, which we opened in 2019, so that we can really increase our numbers this year, working more than ever with schools and colleges to do that and encouraging people into STEM. Our main projects that we're working on are for energy and for defence. Defence, for the reasons that we know, sadly, has been a real growth sector. Um, And then energy projects um, to help the UK become more resilient. For example, the small modular reactors um, that are going to be years worth of work for lots of us in the supply chain. I think this is why we really need to get this strategy right for manufacturing, because we're critical to solving these problems um, particularly with energy for the UK as part of that strategic supply chain. We need to do it, don't we? There's a lot of talk. We need more action. <laughs> Look, uh, uh, what's, what's that? A little less conversation, a little more action, as Elvis Presley said. <laughs> uh, Sharon, Fahin, fantastic to talk to you. And Fahin, good to hear that there's good news coming uh, and people are feeling a bit more positive and we'll look out for the data when you publish it uh, later in the month of June. Thank you very much, both of you. I appreciate you talking to us on the Northern Business Podcast. And now let's turn to my colleague, Josh Havakin. Thank you very much, Graham. Yes, this week I'm joined by John Howe from John Howe & Co. I think it would be fair to say probably one of the last great legal generalists, John. Is that fair to say? 
Um, I think they're, they're few and far between at the moment. Yeah, I'm, 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 I think we are a, a dying breed. So John does a little bit of everything. I wondered uh, whether John you might be able to just list off some of the things that you do cover. Well, again, you know, we, we are general practice for everything you can think of, but we do one or two unusual things. For example, uh, we've assisted in international litigation. Um, we acted, for example, for um, one of the Leeds United fans who got murdered in Galatasaray, and we were involved in those criminal proceedings over there. Um, and renowned as being a leading main scene uh, practitioner country for Bulgaria, which is fairly unusual. I hold a record for doing a quickie seven divorce in five days. She's never been beaten. So we do a, a doctor, um, we do uh, advise clients in all manner of uh, uh, avenues of law, but also some unusual ones as well. That's a huge record, uh, huge record, isn't it? The, mm. the quick seven divorce, even with uh, all these no-fault divorces uh, getting through the courts now? Uh, well, the procedure is different because, I mean, when I did the five-day divorce, it was under the old regime. Um, I'm not quite sure if you can do it under the new regime because obviously the procedure is different and you have a set periods of time like the period of reflection for 20 weeks, which is in the middle of the, 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 new, the new procedures. Okay. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today was some potential implications of homeworking on capital gains tax. Now, we all know there's been this huge drive over the last couple of years of more people working at home. I've seen people repurposing maybe a spare bedroom into an office or turning the shed into a um, little office in the garden. But this could have implications when people come to sell their homes, couldn't it? Potentially, yeah. And it's not very been very well publicised. Um, certainly, at the moment, if you sell your, your own home as a residence, you don't pay any capital gains tax on any increase in value. If, however, part of the building is adapted for business use, whether it be an office or a workshop, then the exemption does no longer applies to that proportion of the property. So you may find that you've got a capital gains tax bill that you didn't know you actually had. And that's not people who are working on the kitchen table a couple of days a week? No, no, it has to be a permanent use. Uh, temporary working is, is affected, but certainly if you adapt part of your, your property for business use, um, then it will be subject to capital gains tax. And, you know, with the great emphasis on home working, people are make, making decisions and they're potentially not aware of this. Okay. Now, you said that there's there's not much guidance out there. Is there anything that people can do to maybe prepare or get themselves ready for selling their home? Um, certainly, if you've used it in the past for, for any kind of business use, and in particular, if you have, uh, for example, made um, claims in your accounts against business use, then you may want to speak to an accountant to make sure that things are uh, presented properly um, and to determine whether or not a tax return is due upon sale. So what would you like to see then, if this guidance isn't out there, what would you like to see from, from government and HMRC on this? I think we do need some more clarity because, for example, um, how do you then assess what proportion of the value of the property is going to be affected by capital gains tax and which bit isn't. Certainly, there is a lot of emphasis at the moment, including from the government, about home working, and this is the way forward. But the full implications should be acknowledged, really. Okay, John. Well, it'll be interesting to see what comes of it, and hopefully we do get some guidance soon, because as people are coming up towards those uh, changes in mortgages with the new interest rates, we're going to see some homes coming onto the market, and uh, there'll probably be some, some cases flying around 
in relation to this. So we'll be keeping an eye out. I'm sure you'll be uh, involved in one very soon. Ooh, we'll sure be... <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, John. Um, as I said earlier on, John is based in West Yorkshire, but deals with every aspect of law, more or less, and uh, even internationally. So if you're looking for somebody in Yorkshire, you couldn't go wrong with John. Thank you very thank much. You. Back to you, Graham. Thank you, Joss. And do join us next week for the Northern Business Podcast. Never, never miss an episode. Like, rate and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.